again to another segment of the Grassy Knoll. Uh, these shows are being pre-recorded, and they will air sometime in January. So if current events fail us somewhat, you'll understand that um, they weren't necessarily in our purview at that time. With us for a second hour of the three we hope to do with him is Alan Watt. Uh, he is the author of the Cutting Through series, which he, um, he has written uh, three titles. And they are, as he said, a companion to the radio shows that he does do. We'll talk more about those titles and how you can access them later. Um, this is Viz, this is the Grassy Knoll, and we are talking to Alan Watt. And Alan, thanks for joining us again today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You know, we, uh, we led off with talking about, quote, this system. And I think that's a great title. Yeah. And we didn't get into it uh, as much as we hope to do today. Uh, we did kind of an overview. But it is very provocative. Um, we all kind of all agree. Everybody kind of agrees, Alan, wherever you are, that it's all about the money. And uh, when we first talked uh, off air, we said, you know, what is it? And you identified it is that they're looking for a system, yeah. an economic system. So uh, let's pick up, if you want to do some preparatorial remarks from where we were last time, please do so, and then let's get into where it was and perhaps where it is and where it's going. Yeah, well, this whole system which we take as being normal simply because we're born into a, a certain phase of it, as our parents before us uh, take it for granted. That, and, and Lenin, actually, who was trained by the best bankers on the planet, uh, made the statement that uh, there are many directions that, that mankind can go as a society. He said that the public mustn't be allowed to know this. In other words, they must think that the one they're born into is somehow the natural evolution. And so, uh, and true enough, if your parents don't warn you about things you, you think is quite natural, and yet your laws, your legal system, your, uh, your, your educational system, uh, your future of, of working as a taxpayer, because that's what we are, um, it's all decided for you in advance. And uh, then you realize that you, you really have very few choices within this particular system. You have certain directions you can go uh, from the, the, the hub of a wheel, but eventually if you go too far, you'll always find that, that perimeter, uh, which you can crawl around, but you can't get over. Mm -hmm. Because that is the system. It's a, it's a total um, organized system. Uh, right down to, to how many laborers or, or, or middle class are needed for a particular country at any one time. Um, and, and, uh, and, and right down to even culling off the, the herd, as they call it, mm. when, when there's too many of them with no real function to serve. And then if we go back to the beginnings again of this system, I like to jump back and forth because this is a continuum. Mm -hmm. and, and people get stuck or hung up on certain aspects of history, which is sort of hung out there for us to see on a washing line. And I think it's deliberately too, because really the, the system has been unbroken for thousands of years. It's, uh, it's a system where a few people can get everyone else to work for them take their labor from them uh, through the money they introduce and they take it back in the form of taxation and with that money that everyone accepts they can hire and maintain um, in the field armies and, mm -hmm. and pay them you see and then they can, they can go and conquer other countries so this has been a, a continuum for thousands of years and, and, it, and if you look at even the definition of a citizen well, a citizen um, uh, basically means someone 
who is born into an organized uh, or an organized society with pre-existing duties to that society. All right, interesting. So that would mean that before they're born, <laughs> they're, they're already somewhat in servitude to the system's um, mm -hmm. constraints. That's absolutely right, yeah. All right, now you said something interesting uh, at the very beginning of um, you were addressing my first question, talking about Lenin and what, what did you say about the, the best bankers? Uh, about what all of the best bankers trained them. Okay, now, and, and we talk about Lenin. Let's roll it back about 50 years and talk about Marx. Do you believe in any way, shape, or form that Marx was the abs was the creator of either Das Kapital or the Manifesto, or do you think he was perhaps somewhat of an amanuensis? Yeah, he was just a, a basic field journalist who was recruited and, and set up uh, with a lot of money to back him in London, England. And uh, the money supposedly came through Engels, who had factories. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt that, that Karl Marx himself is just uh, the front man to push this, or at least to put in ink this uh, agenda, and that the information, I am sure, was supplied to him by others, because it was not a new agenda. Now, we may not be able to uh, prove it, mm -hmm. or perhaps so. Maybe you've done some research to do so, and if you can't share that with us. Yes, if, if we look at uh, Adam Weishaupt uh, in the 1700s and the Illuminati, uh, which again is only one part of an organization which was already worldwide and uh, he was singled out for attention which distracts you from all the rest who were not singled out you see but Weishaupt himself thought that a small group of intellectual elites had the right to rule the world and and basically reorganize the world in the way that they saw fit for their own use not for the people's use and uh, it was an elitist organization. If we compare that at the Illuminati's uh, agenda with no private property in the hands of the public, etc., um, and, and the, the income taxes and all the rest of it, it's very similar to uh, the Communist Manifesto mm -hmm. that Karl Marx came out with. And when you really tie them all up together, they're all part and parcel of another organization, obviously, since they all have the exact same agenda. What I'm interested in your saying was that the Bavarian Illuminati, which was begat, if we could say at least on record, on May 1st, uh, 1776, are, yeah. are we agreed with that? Well, that's supposedly when they made it official that they existed, but everyone already knew at that time that they already existed. Yes. And really, uh, if you look at the, the old Oxford dictionaries, they will tell you that the Illuminati was a term for an organization which began cropping up from around the, the 15th century onwards. All right, so when you talk about uh, a, a part of a larger worldwide organization, mm -hmm. are we referring back to, um, I'm not going to mention this, I'm not going to state this correctly, so are we talking about the, uh, the Spanish uh, branch of that that Loyola came from? It's very possible, I think so. Um, uh, I, I, I tend to view history as a continuum rather than stops and starts. Mm -hmm. It's more of a continuum with uh, specific um, places and people put in our way, uh, simply updating part of, of the same agenda in different parts of the world. Um, because when we all look back at it, I mean, the Phoenicians were doing the same thing mm -hmm. thousands of years ago. 
the, the Phoenicians were introducing a standard monetary system wherever mm -hmm. they went. Uh, initially, they'd barter with the, with the people. They, in fact, they, they set up uh, a, a, a customs. That was what customs was. It's where they set up a, uh, an enclosure in, in any little island or place or country they visited. And uh, they had put their, their priests in there who studied the population and got to know their customs. And that's where the word customs comes <coughs> from. And, of course, once they understood their customs, they, they saw the quickest way to get round uh, their barter system and then introduce the money. So they'd barter for initially, and then uh, after the fifth or, or sixth visit, then they'd, they'd give them the money and, and say, we'll, we'll only accept this in, in payment. So here's how you get it, yeah, you, you mine for it, and so on. Um, so that's how that all started. And they started up uh, a factory system wherever they went. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they enslaved the peoples and, and, and set up factory towns thousands of years ago. So this is a continuation down through the centuries of really the same system, all based on money. And, and the public's conditioning into accepting it as a normal part of living. Uh, Which obviously means that whoever really controls the money will always control the entire system. Um, it's as simple as that. So I don't see it as, as anyone taking over. What I see is, is simply they upgrade their own mm -hmm, system mm -hmm. every so often. And that's, that's what's behind the, the myth of the phoenix bird. Yep. Every 500 years, they, they, they're born again from the ashes as, as, a, as a new, uh, apparently a new type of bird, but really it's the same one that's updated, you know. Would that necessarily mean, though, that, uh, well, I, I would believe so, but of course, uh, you know, tell me. Uh, it almost seems that, like, no matter what, there's an overarching uh, evil consciousness or whatever that, despite the epochs and the generations, this somehow has a consciousness that invests another generation or whoever comes along. Uh, There's no doubt. There's no doubt. This is not what we would term generally human. Um, humans aren't really capable of long intergenerational planning yeah. on, on such an efficient scale as this is. A, a, a good example of that, in fact, is the, is the medieval uh, cathedrals that were put up all over Europe and sometimes it would take five or even eight generations of stonemasons to complete the, the project. Uh, so we're talking really um, maybe 50, 50 years in a generation at that mm -hmm. time. So, and that was between plagues and famines and wars and all that. So nothing halted the progress of the building. Uh, if it was purely human, you would be waylaid or, or you'd postpone certain parts of it and, and maybe forget it altogether as your priorities change. But, this, but no, this, this agenda is, never falters. Yeah, and, um, and that's what I tell people too, that it's, you know, when people say, well, how can that be? And, uh, and I state, well, you know, perhaps it's a little bit bigger than all of us. Mm -hmm. And that you have to understand that, um, that whatever entities construct this, uh, they've been at it since time immemorial, and uh, they're probably a little bit ahead of the game than you are as far as trying to fathom what um, they or it is doing. Mm -hmm. uh, again, you know, I, I talked to the Collins brothers, and they come to uh, a lot of the same conclusions you do. Mm -hmm. And someday maybe I'd just like to have you guys uh, all on mm -hmm. because uh, you really aren't aware of their work. They're really not aware of yours, but you come to some same conclusions with pretty decent research, mm -hmm. and I think that in, in itself is convicting. And uh, that for another time. Mm -hmm. But um, is, is what that took place 
in that continuum something that might be called free trade? Well, free trade was was part of the uh, the system uh, introduced by the Phoenicians. Uh, the Noans had the Minoans had their version of it uh, prior to the Phoenicians, really, uh, and probably one and the same people, in fact, who simply changed their places of residence. Um, but the Minoan records, many records have been found of all this, the, the fleets of ships they had and the cargoes and, and the, the types of trading laws that they'd set down everywhere they'd went. And it's no different from today. It wasn't really free trade. Uh, little Joe Bloggs couldn't, couldn't stand on the seashore and, and, and trade whatever he wanted. You had to be authorized by, by um, whatever government was installed over you to, to trade with anybody. And free trade t- today is no different. It's exactly the same thing. Um, when, when old Rockefeller said that uh, competition is a sin, he was not being flippant. He, mm-hmm. he was telling you according to his actual inner religion, you know, his convictions. And so uh, they believe in this. They don't believe that, that there should be competition as such. It should be, all be monopoly. But and um, it's like e pluribus unum, you know. Uh, that really is, is um, many out of one, or one out of many, but basically you might also say it's as many makes one. It's a monopoly. Uh, uh, that's what that means. You know. Well, on this side of uh, the Atlantic, and you may be well aware of this, Alan, but um, we trace back to probably when the real big push was put on uh, for one world order is when the robber barons made their money mm-hmm. and then turned around. And the first thing, you know, when people say, well, how can you keep a conspiracy quiet? Well, first of all, make the money. Mm-hmm. Second of all, control the information. Yeah. Whether it's um, newspapers back when, and then ra- later radio and TV, and also the textbooks. They're key. Yeah. And it's a matter of documentation that the uh, foundations, namely the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, grabbed the hold of uh, influential newspaper <coughs> publishers early in the 20th century, mm-hmm. and they also schooled a number of hand-picked historians on how you're going to write history. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there we have it. I mean, th- there you can hide the footprints of all these characters throughout time. Yes, and, and you know, every university in North America uh, gets grants from these foundations mm-hmm. to operate, and, and including the Rockefeller Foundation, And but along with the grant come certain conditions, of course. Sure, sure. In other words, here's what you can teach, here's what you will not touch. And, and that's how you control education. It's not difficult. And then, of course, if you also own the publishing houses that supply the textbooks, then you have it made. All right, so you're in agreement, as I am, and I'm, I'm sure you've, you've read the same material I have. And if you haven't, just like with the Collins brothers, if you come, at, come about it from another way, uh-huh. we still arrive at the same point, and that is control the money, control the information, and you can pretty much do what you, w- you wish. Yeah. And also in the United States, are you familiar with a personage from about the early part of the 20th century by the name of Philander Knox? His name was what? <laughs> it's a great name. You've got to admit this, Alan. Uh-huh. Philander Knox. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Yeah. Long story short, this guy was the individual who was in charge of basically undoing whatever Teddy Roosevelt was supposedly doing in the way of busting trusts. Uh-huh. All right, so Philander was a lawyer working behind the scenes to make it right for all the uh, robber barons. Mm-hmm. And later on, he is the character, a pivotal uh, character, I think Secretary of State under Taft, that just before Wilson got in, he went ahead, and if you remember this episode in American history, he rams through uh, the income tax mm-hmm. and 
they, you know, as you might know, um, there was a book called The Law That Never Was, mm -hmm. when they looked at the United States and found out there, was, there were not enough states to ratify it. Yeah. So this is Philander Knox. So I mean, there was a character there mm -hmm. who took care of business. He disappears without anybody really knowing about him. Yeah. But with such a pivotal... And actually, his life impacts every single one of us mm -hmm. from that point on. Well, Carol Quigley touched on the fact that it was a coincidence, he said, and he was a historian for the CFR for a period, and he had access to the records, and, uh, and the Anglo-American establishment uh, that, he, that he wrote, mm -hmm. um, he mentions the fact that it was the Royal Institute of International Affairs, uh, with an American branch, the CFR, uh, that, that pushed to have the income tax brought in mm -hmm. in America and uh, the rest of the, the Western countries. Yeah, and you mentioned, that's the first time I heard it, that um, the UK mm -hmm. also had instituted an income tax right about the same time. That's right. Uh -huh. What a coincidence. And it was Lord Milner and his bunch <laughs> and uh, Curtis that, uh, that proposed mm -hmm. that and brought it out uh, into the open. So he, here's the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the CFR uh, promoting the very same manifesto as, as supposedly uh, Lenin uh, was pushing at the same time. Yeah. And so what, then you realize that, hey, there are no sides here. It's all the same agenda. And it's not coming from uh, this or that. It's coming from it. Mm -hmm. it's on, there's only one organization here that gives the appearance of sides to create conflict for the masses so that they can give you the solution. And, and that is what they call the law of nature. They, they split up the forces of nature and always give you a this or that option and everything. And, and we come to the, 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 the synthesis, which is exactly where they wanted to bring us. So it's a chess game that's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, there's only one real player, and, and the masses of the public don't know that they're even on the board. At this time, too, let's do a little business. Um, we're talking with Alan Watt. Uh, he has uh, authored a three-volume series uh, c called The uh, uh, Cutting Through, uh, which is, um, he has said this is an augmentation and a complementing uh, of what he has done on the radio with shows like this and Jackie Petru and others. So, Alan, at this time, uh, can you tell people how they can uh, uh, gain access to that information? Yes, the, 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 the three uh, of them, they're $25 each. Um, I prefer to be paid with uh, U.S. Postal order, if possible. Uh, that's international. No international, postal order. right? Um, they have to. They have to be international. And if the address, uh, their, their uh, inquiries to me, it's Alan Watt, which is W A T T. The address is site, S I T E, four one, box four. And the town is called Estere, like Fred Estere, only with an E in front. That's E-S-T-A-I-R-E, -E, Ontario, Canada. And the postal code is P for Peter, 3, E for Elizabeth, 4, N for Nora, 1. That's P3E, 4N1. And, and I'll get uh, either one or all of them out, depending on your order, as soon as I can. Well, uh, good to my word, <laughs> I went to the local rural post office and asked for an international money order, 
and uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so yeah. I have to get myself in the course of this crazy time of the year mm-hmm. uh, to uh, another post office, which, of course, um, like a lot of other things, only keeps itself open regular business hours, which means if you're working, you're not getting there. Yeah. So yeah. Um, um, I will do that. I thought that was very interesting, uh, and um, I, I do want to get my hands on that. Mm-hmm. Um, just to refresh my memory, because I've read this a couple of times, did I read you the quote at all from um, Wilcox about um, the influence of Britain still to this day in Canada? I may have done that. I'm not sure. Uh, no, I don't think so. We, we uh, I, I know that. Um, uh, I, I think even that the setup of Canada and the U.S. is part of the dialectic, mm-hmm. and it was from the beginning. Um, um, I have no doubt in that, about that, really, because they always have to have a competitor or someone that can say, watch those guys over there, we need an army here, then they tax more from you to support the army, which they, they then eventually always turn on the public. Um, so, so, And government cannot exist without an enemy over there somewhere. Well, you know, I might have done it, and if people are hearing this, of course, they pile up the... Uh the uh, the archives you know you know bear with us mm-hmm. uh, because I mean you and I are distanced somewhat between our shows that we do and I do a lot of talking about this and sending it around mm-hmm. so uh, folks uh, suffer us if you will but what what Wilcox wrote was that he goes um, he said every inch of federal land here is owned by her oh yeah mm-hmm. all right it's called crown land and mm-hmm. is held in trust by the federal government on her behalf. Mm-hmm. And he also said, she graces our money with the words, Dei Gratia Regina, or, for short, by the grace of God Queen. That's right. I'll leave it there. We might have touched upon that. And you know, as I told you, and this is still a work in progress, so forgive me so I can't speak from any kind of uh, authority, Mm -hmm. but I'm listening to a series about land patents in the United States, and I'm getting this feeling like, you know what, Mm -hmm. they all own it. And they can call it back any time they want. Mm -hmm. I mean, now, this is just a bit of a... well, a bit of a statement of fact uh-huh. and a little bit of extrapolation. Do you have anything in your studies that would indicate that perhaps one day they can turn around to, you know... Oh, they can. There's no doubt they can because the, uh, when the Americas, as it used to be called, uh, was being opened up by, by London, really, uh, the Queen or, or the royalty were granting charters Mm-hmm. Uh, to huge corporations which they owned or were involved with themselves, all the nobility. And and they had patent rights on everything. They had first grabs, you might say, at everything <laughs> uh, for perpetuity. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have never been revoked. They have never been revoked or even challenged, you know. We, Alan, we have a person down in Georgia who has, has probably entered this labyrinth Mm-hmm. from a, a completely different angle, but mm-hmm. it's probably coming upon a lot of what we're finding. And I have to tell you, this is like the elephant in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very, very big, and I am not equipped right now to even address it. Yeah. But when I see all this stuff coming in, um, I'm laying back for a time when we might be able to make sense out of it. Mm-hmm. And that really, honestly, you know, we just in the States had this draconian Supreme yeah. Court decision about eminent domain. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't even matter if they want to put a road through. If Walmart wants it, they're going to get it. That's right. But now I'm thinking about eminent domain. It's like, well, maybe nobody owns anything, and if it's all to the crown, whether it be French, British, or Spanish, yep. you don't have a cl- you don't have a prayer. That you, you don't, no. Huh. No, the, the old charters were never revoked, and they were legal charters authorized by the crown. Um 
I don't know if you've ever walked part of the borders between Canada and the U.S. and, and got off the beaten track. Uh, I've, I've made crossings, but I've never been in remote areas, nor have I walked any extension of the borders, no. Yeah, well, well the main border, you know, the, was eventually settled after the, the supposed war or skirmish of 1812. 1812, yeah. And I think that was part of the reason that the, the Masons on both sides were told to get a skirmish going so they could redefine the borders for future use. And um, if you walk the borders uh, and get off the roads, the border actually is marked every every half mile or so or mile with a, a Masonic obelisk. Seriously? Yeah, like the ones you see in graveyards, maybe 12 foot tall, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I tell you what, I've seen that in Vermont and just pass it off as, you know, as a, as a mile marker or a marker. It's a marker, all right. Oh. <laughs> and, and then when you go into who they set up to... To uh, eventually delineate the borders or redefine them. Now he had a title; he was a British uh, uh, lord, um, and, and it was one of the Rothschild families. So it's often the title you see uh, will hide the, the, the surname because the title goes over it. Uh, well, well, the father is using his last name properly, like Lord Rothschild or Baron Rothschild. Mm-hmm. The son is given a title like Lord Chatham or whoever, mm-hmm. and a British lord who was sent over to do, uh, to fix the borders, and uh, he w- he was a Rothschild. You know, he was a Rothschild son. Well, so so they've been involved in the border uh, business forever, and, and of course in the banking. Why not? It's their system, you know. Well, uh, and, and this leads me back to what we talked about um, with Marx and such. Mm-hmm. I envision a scenario where the Rothschilds grab a hold of Carl and said, "This is how it goes, mm-hmm. and this is what you're going to write." Is that necessarily? I, I doubt, uh, or whoever's behind even the Rothschilds, because I, uh, what we find, uh, and I think uh, Quigley was quite correct in this. He said in the Anglo-American establishment. Um, that, that the people that you see in public and the people you know of in public who appear to wield the power um, and take the glory, etc., or the booze and, and the hitting, uh, are, are never the real front, the, the real men. He said those who are chosen to wield true power work behind the scenes uh, constantly. Uh, and, and the only reward they get is the knowledge that they do wield almost mm-hmm. supreme power. Well, two things, Alan. One, that also is reminiscent of the quote attributed to Disraeli in his fictional work, or not-so-fictional work, Coningsby, yeah. when he talks about there are different personages you know, than you, you expect that, that run things. You know that quote, right? Mm-hmm. And two, you know, I'm thinking, as, as a listener who I think is pretty astute, he's a very humble guy, just lays back, he listens to the shows, and, he, and I, I just think he has, as um, Tennyson said about Wellington, you know, he was rich in uh, saving common sense. Mm-hmm. What he said is, he goes, you know, Quigley, Quigley told a lot. Mm-hmm. Do you really think that the powers that be would allow him to spout so much if they didn't want him to do that and in a way mm-hmm. might deflect from other forces that can hide now in the shadows cast by Quigley's work. What do you think about that? Well, I think that that's a possibility, although I have a, I have a tape of Quigley talking to one of his students, um, uh, and he was pretty well scared, actually, of, of approaching or, or, or certain aspects of this. Um, I can understand how his mind worked, because he mm-hmm. himself was in the ivory tower, um, and he'd been trained in the same system which he then taught to others 
And but he himself did definitely come up against this strange uh, uh, impasse where where he, he had to concede that, that there was something else involved here, and he did touch on on the Freemasonic aspect of it. He did touch on the on the all-seeing eye symbol on the dollar bill, and mentioned that this this was at least six thousand years old. This symbol. Mm-hmm. And, and he did ask the question, why it, why was it put on there? Why, why is this symbol used by free? And, and then he, to, he tells the student uh, to turn off the tape machine. He says because this could damage your career and mine. Well, and of course we're aware, um, as uh, Stanley Montethis talked about, that that tome, tragedy and hope, mm-hmm. is still bereft of a great deal of pages, is it not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, one can wonder why that was excised, and of course we'll never see the word ex- work extant, will we? That's right. That's right. I, I, I mean, I'm sure Quigley himself, as I say, I mean, I've, I've seen plenty of people who've been uh, brainwashed into the same system, and, and they're all for the system, even though they only know part of it. They, they don't see how the rest operates, uh, and they really think it's all real and for the, for the good of all type thing. They, they themselves think things are only being struggled for at the moment for, for, a, for a better goal. Mm-hmm. They don't realize themselves that this is an ancient agenda because when you open Pandora's box, uh, uh, it's very hard to close it again, you know. Mm-hmm. And most people would rather go into denial than, than because you have to reevaluate everything you've ever believed in and known when you open that Pandora's box. Nothing is ever the same again. Well, I can tell you from uh, being a lowly employee in a library at a university in Florida, um, we've had a number of professors come on, and the ones that we've had the most uh, static with are those who are in political science and such, who have, you know, they've written their dissertations, um, they believe in what they believe, they've been ensconced in academia for 20 years, and it's like, okay, great, you're the PhD, I'm not, but have you ever thought about just stepping outside your realm of knowledge to something that might shake your world and might be documentable, and they don't want to do it. So now, you know, where I had so much respect, supposedly, for academicians back when I was going to school, because I thought there was a real desire there for an open debate, i got to tell you, Alan, I mean, in universities nowadays, and I went back for a second degree in the 90s, but I'm telling you, I I have not, I I mean, this has gotten as militant as any other organization, Mm -hmm. and I am really disappointed, and um, to a certain degree, Uh heartbroken about the lack of any kind of openness, even in, you know, in colleges and universities. Yeah, it's been Sovietized. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's the whole system, is Sovietization and, and political correctness. Well, uh, even when the, the, the political correctness ends up being uh, uh, mad, basically, it, it, um, people will still go along with it, with the, the madness of it all, until you eventually it breaks down under its own weight because you can't even communicate even things which are important to people. So it eventually breaks down under its own weight, you know. But what, what, what's really disheartening is the fact that a lot of these professors. And I have to admit, I mean, they've been socialists their whole life in the sense of that, mm-hmm. okay, they go to high school, they go to college, they get a, a, a TA, they get their master's, and they get another TA, and they get their PhD. And excuse me, but they've been on the government tip forever. 
-hmm. in the United States, which is not supposedly socialistic. Mm -hmm. And then they come out and they pontificate about um, the wonders of socialism as if they don't understand, and I'm assuming they don't, that you're dealing with a human construct that will always have an oligarchy above it and that will always tend to corruption. So are you guys really, really believing in this? And, and, of course, this, tr- this trickles down to the kids. Yep. And the kids would go, I mean, I've got kids in the United States saying socialism is good. And I said, why? Well, because it gives everybody equal chance. I said, <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. And I said, what do you mean, equal treatment? And they say, yeah. I'm going, yeah, like dogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, like Animal Farm said it. Everybody's yep. equal, some more than others. Mm-hmm. Now, you came from, uh, you know, Europe, which was pretty much... You know, social democracy means just socialism. Yeah. You come over to Canada, you got kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. But now when you're on this side of the Atlantic, you know, probably more aware of what's happening in the United States because, you're, uh-huh. you know, you, you, you divide, you know you, you're directing your attention to it. Mm-hmm. What do you see Canada as? And can you see the socialization, I would call, you know, the Sovietation of the United States? Is, is that palpable to you? Oh, absolutely. There's, there's no doubt about that. In fact, Lenin said the same thing, that um, when the time comes that uh, when the Western powers are debating at election times social uh, issues such as school, uh, welfare, um, health care, that type of thing, he said they have already become socialized or Sovietized. Mm-hmm. And that's all you hear when, uh, when elections come up. They never mention the bigger programs like NAFTA or GATT or anything like that, of course. But um, the, sure enough, it's all daycare, etc., all these social, socialistic-type uh, policies. And the public themselves have been so indoctrinated that they, they, they come to expect uh, these, these policies to be fulfilled. I uh. mean, here in Canada, there's an, another uh, show election coming up, and... Uh, the present Prime Minister, who's re-running again, has just promised to, to bring in more expanded uh, free daycare for, the, for every Canadian woman. And, and then they talk to the women in the streets, of course. I don't know how many they select for the television. But, but, but these women are all say automatically, well, that's, that's about time. It's about time we had this, you know. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's about time that everyone else brought up my child for me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really what they're saying. So they come to expect these these, these government uh, social policies uh, to, to, to because they want to you know this is socialism is perpetual immaturity it's it's a Peter Pan syndrome you don't want to grow up and, and face the world on your own and unfortunately the the technique is uh, very um, it works very well on women because they they want protection they want uh, promises of of, of uh, security. And that's what Hitler said. I mean, uh, Hitler said, uh, and he was only quoting Nero, mm-hmm. that uh, both of them said, um, our policies must be directed at the woman. We, we, we shall promise her food and, and, and uh, security, etc. And she will come to us, and the child will have to follow her, and men must follow the man. Mm-hmm. So this system is still working today. It's the same policies, because these are formulas. These are behavioral formulas. And when you know how to introduce those formulas, you'll come out with the same uh, end product, basically. Uh-huh. And these, these, these formulas have been known for thousands of years by, by elite groups, and, and they keep all of these in archives, not in public <laughs> libraries. 
And, and that's also what's taught at some of the Ivy League universities and, and at the old uh, uh, Stone uh, universities <laughs> do me a favor, in Europe. Do me a favor, recount, though, what you because uh, that was great, and I, I, I've lost the memory of it um, from the last time we did it. Tell me what the uh, significance of archives has with the uh, common people. Well, <laughs> the, since the, age of, well, the, the time, actually, of the Minoans, <coughs> the Minoans made sacred the beehive as a symbol okay. of the perfect structured society with the queen bee, then the drones, which are the priests run about them in the administrators, bureaucracies, and then you have the workers down below. And, uh, of course, the Egypt used the same symbol for their perfect society. Uh, Napoleon picked up on that, too. He put the bee up there on his flag at one point and had a robe made with bees on it. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the higher masons sometimes call themselves the, 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 the true bees, the, the workers, you know. Is this necessarily pyramidical to also in structure? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. So... Um, uh, that's what they, 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 they use as a symbol of their perfect society. That's why the, the I think Utah has the, their, their coat of arms <laughs> with the beehive. Beehive state. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and what will you divine from that? That the Mormons there and something's up there or what? Uh, well, the Mormons definitely. Uh, we know Adam Smith was a, a Mason. And Joseph Smith, yeah. And Joseph Smith, sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So these, these, this, is, this is always their symbol of the perfect structured society. And then when you, there's, a, there's a word play there, too. So archives, yes. I mean, That's if amazing. you're a bee, you put stuff in a hive. And, and the ark is a symbol of their, of their promise, their agenda. And, and so because the sun travels in an ark every day over the sky. So we can talk to it as, uh, we can speak to it as an overarching That's agenda. Right. That's right. So Beautiful. they have archives with mm. knowledge which are not accessible to the public. And... Um, and masonry, in fact, and high masonry, P.O. and P.U. are the lowest forms of life. Right. So, um, uh, we get what they dish out to us at the bottom, and they've skimmed off all the good stuff for themselves with all of this knowledge. Well, uh, and it does come to the fore once in a while. I think there's, there's a, an author um, called Barbara, is it, is it Tillman? Oh, oh Tuckner. Tuckman. Barbara Tuckman. Tuck- yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's excellent, yes. And it's so obvious to me that, that she's a chosen author to get into these archives because uh, she's been authorized to come out with the information that she has. Now, many authors have gone in before and, and omitted this relevant information about the past, but she's allowed to bring it to the public. Mm-hmm. So they are definitely authorized to, 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 uh, on what to, to disclose and how much to disclose, and, and what aspects to never to mention, mm-hmm. you see. I would agree that Quigley was in the same category, but be that as it may, you're still getting good information. Yeah. And I don't know if you read it or not, um, but I tell you, Tuckman, I think of the distant mirror. Did you read that at all? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's some great stories in there. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Uh, and, so those, and, and so that tells you that there were detailed, detailed histories kept right down to, to personalities of, of main characters. Uh, so, so nothing was 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 lost in the, in the mm-hmm. centuries, you know. All right, now, um, boy, I tell you what. Like I said, we could talk, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I want to get back to what I promised um, myself, yourself, and everybody else that we would get back to, and that is the system. So let's talk about free trade, what it meant back <laughs> when, mm-hmm. what it means now, and yeah. what it might mean in the future, if you will. Yeah. Well, well, John D. We have to jump to the 1500s from England, 
to find the, the he coined the term the British or Brightish Empire, and he wanted to he proposed to Queen Elizabeth the first that this empire should basically stretch across the whole world eventually, and it would uh, it would basically take over every country into the, a one system based on the British Empire by using uh, trade negotiations and law. Uh, and um, so he, he was the first one to mention that, that the sort of free trade, that they could trade between countries who'd signed on to copy the exact same system as Britain, you know. Well, uh, that's how it really was started at that, that, that period, or this update, put it that way. And of course, um, it's, no, it's no secret that the Rothschilds uh, openly, even in the authorized biographies, um, had from the very beginning pushed the, the concept of free trade uh, to countries who would accept the British form of government and bureaucracies and banking. In other words, duplicate the exact mm -hmm. same system and, and they would bring them into, into free trade areas. And, um, but of course, once again, those, those corporations that wanted to trade would have to go through the British crown uh, for a yay or an a. And so it, it was not uh, a, a true free thing, whereas say, anybody could, could take his wares and sell them to whoever he wishes. You had to be authorized or chartered to do so. And that's exactly what it is. It's not free trade as such. It's free between the big players right. who all belong right. to the same club anyway. Uh, and um, it certainly cuts out hassles for them. Uh, China is a free trade m member because all of those containers coming from China, thousands and thousands every day, mm -hmm. uh, even have it written in their charter of free trade that they don't have to even open them here at customs. Well, you know, free is a nice sounding word. Free trade's nice. And I've had people email me, and we've mm -hmm. gotten into discussions about, like, well, what's wrong with this? I mean, this mm -hmm. is a good thing. And yeah. I understand how it sounds, and I often uh, use the analogy of, like, well, you know, mm -hmm. would you bite into a, a poison apple if you knew it were a poison? If it looked really good, would you, you know, why, why would you? In other words, so you got to put a shine on it yeah. to make people bite into it. That's right, free. Uh, yeah, and trade is a nice word, too. But trade things. Sure, and it, but it's free, as you said, for mm -hmm. the monopolists. Yeah. But really, when you talk about it, then that makes the workers bereft of any kind of place to take their wares or trades or anything else. Yeah. And you're basically stuck with whatever you got, and that's the way it's going to be. Am I right in that assessment? Absolutely. It cuts out all competition from anybody who would wish to take part, because only those who are authorized to take part are given the charters to participate. So really, it's a monopolization of the, the world system. It also encompasses your future, your children's future, because it isn't just about trade. It's about unification of the world. Mm -hmm. You see, that's how they started off the, 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 the European Union. They started off with free trade. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, they're signing laws and, and agreements amongst them until um, everything was being standardized amongst you, till you're all the same with your, with your law systems and bureaucratic type systems and eventually one day you're, you're, you're under one government <laughs> and that's where it's supposed to bring it's intended to do that so under the guise of free trade it's a whole world structural system under a single government that's what it's all about it's the, it's the accomplishment of Karl Marx it's the, the accomplishment of Weishaupt um, it's the accomplishment of uh, 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 Albert Pike 
who had the same, actually, the same agenda as the communists, too. Because it's all one and the same agenda. But as you said, it goes back to the Phoenicians, and uh, yeah. as the Collins brother would say, it goes back to the Canaanites. I mean, as, as you mentioned at the outset of the show, mm-hmm. it's a continuum. You change the faces, but the agenda is the same. Always the same. Uh-huh. And, of course, now we have a little bit different of a spin on it in, the, in this FTAA and such. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I find really interesting, and, of course, I am ignorant of what goes on on your media up there, which I still think is probably a little bit more uh, investigative than ours is truly, and, mm-hmm. and I don't know how much more. But um, um, Galen Ross... I don't know if you're familiar with that name. Are you? Yeah. All right. Galen did a, you know, he did a crude uh, half an hour, 40 minute thing on the American Union, mm-hmm. but he ripped all this stuff from C-SPAN. And here you got these characters like David Rockefeller. What a surprise! Mm-hmm. Uh, Gergen, uh, Madeleine Albright, uh, Cheney, mm-hmm. and and they're all like just extolling the virtues of this American Union. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you know, all the Johnny Lunch buckets and their wives and families have no idea what's going on because this is not passing through anybody in the media or on the hill. Yes, I, I taped that when it was, uh, I think it was the 27th of March uh, this year where they signed that uh, amalgamation of the continent oh. into one at Waco, Texas. Oh, and I've got the CBC television did a document, well, not a documentary, it was on the main news, only for about two minutes, but they did say that it was uh, the, the total integration of, of the, the countries and it's a done deal and they had six more meetings to complete this year alone um, to get this phase of it through and uh, George Bush himself was extolling the virtues of this and, and how fantastic it would be and he used the term again free trade you know and, and etc mm-hmm. and how, how friendly it all was but uh, one of the main reporters stood up in the interview and said, does this mean it leads to the same unification as the European Union? And then Prime Minister Martin jumped in quickly. He's a better lawyer, you know. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, it's not exactly the big bang. It's just that, you know, he tried to solve a little bit to an extent. But, but it's a done deal. Um, it's all set up for the amalgamation, which again brings us back to Karl Marx, because... In the 1840s, he was writing about the, the coming three world trading blocks with a, a united Europe, uh, a united Americas, and, and the Pacific Rim group under, under a single world government. That was all the extension of the Communist Manifesto. So th- this is nothing new again. They're only fulfilling their mission. It's all approved by the European royalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all approved by those that lead, lead the Marxists of the world. In other words, there's only one top at the head of this. And uh, it's nothing to do with, with uh, free anything. It, it's a matter, it's, it's making everyone totally <laughs> interdependent through laws, right down to, to, to the water that you drink, uh, where you can oh. get it from, how much you'll pay for it. Uh, right down to the fact that you you won't be able to even grow your own vegetables in the garden. You must be interdependent for everything. Well, I tell you what, you just in that in those that last thirty seconds. I mean, you're making my head spin because we've talked so much about this, and I've not really you know it, it's not that I come up with this stuff because I I just think about it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, we, we we look at the research, we look at a lot of the stuff that's written in past decades. And then, you know, they've told you where we're going. Yes. So when I say this stuff, people go, well, that's your opinion. It's not my opinion. No, I'm just it's, it's, it's written, it's documented, 
uh, it's discussed at all the high-level meetings, and there's always publications yeah. come out after the, these high-level meetings, which no one bothers to read except the, 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 the few short-sighted ones that, that are left. <laughs> well, let me, let me throw... <laughs> Let me throw this out at you. I mean, I'm still listening, as I told you, mm-hmm. uh, to this, you know, 16-part series on land patents from Europe and the United States. Yeah. And, and it was talking about, and believe me, I'm still doing this from a bit of an ignorant point of view, so I'm just throwing it out. Uh-huh. I'll, you know, in, in justice to everyone who listens, I'll follow it up, and, and hopefully it'll be with you, Alan. But I'm hearing all these, like, uh, caveats about land ownership, and it's like, well, no, the Crown owns all the navigable waters and the land they're under. <laughs> Yep. And the and the land on which the tides wash, and I'm going. Hold on a second. Are you telling me, you know, that for instance, New York State, like all the counties that are on both sides of the Hudson, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's like I'm I'm starting. I mean, I'm not there yet, but I'm like, are you telling me you got to consult with the Dutch, the French, or yeah. the British to say like uh, who actually holds title to this land? Right. I mean, that's bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, also, with the water and food situation, uh, did you ever read a short story by Asimov called The Winnowing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So there you go. I mean, they can construct terrorist activities in every sector of our life mm-hmm. beyond oil, beyond energy. That would be, say, electricity and, and gas yeah. to the food system, right. to the water. Uh-huh. And then you're right. You can't grow a garden because you might be having some kind of, uh, you know, demon seed in there. Like they've got genetically modified, uh, you know, produce. But don't worry about it because your garden might be a problem. Mm-hmm. And you do see this as as the beginning of everybody being forced to rely on the state as mother or father, you know, God. Yes, that, that's what they really mean by interdependence. They, they, when they first threw it out, it was to mislead us into thinking that we'd, we'd be dependent on Africa for chromium and things like that. But but it goes much further. It goes down to the individual level where the, the, there's no aspect of your life where you will be allowed to be independent at all. Hmm. In fact, being independent in any aspect of your life will mean that you're antisocial. That's what they'll tell you. Well, I'm glad I'm antisocial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so are you. Uh, yeah. Also, with your studying, uh, mm-hmm. you must have been a young man back in the UK, up in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would assume that the United States and the citizens think that they are so on top of stuff, they are on the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Therein lies the um, the mirage. Mm-hmm. In essence, did you feel that you were freer and also had more access to the information that has been laid into the centuries about what is to come? I, I think I was at that time for sure, yeah. I mean, I remember um, I, I, I was really small, and there was a, in the 1960s there was a, a conference held in Britain, a world conference, uh, by the Royal Institute of International Affairs mm-hmm. with all the CFR countries mm-hmm. as well. And the U.S. was represented. It went on for two or three weeks. And a little blurbs came out in the newspaper. And the whole idea of the conference was to decide, to decide which culture uh, would be promoted as the dominant culture for the world. Should should the English have uh, do it through movies and so on and uh, TV productions or should the United States do it? Uh, there was no other competition. It was already decided. It was decided back in the days of Francis Bacon that English would be the dominant business uh, language of the future, mm-hmm. and um, and so they came up with the idea that that America should pr- have the job of promoting the culture through music and movies and so on. 
and, and also to do the majority of the policing of the world until the Chinese took over. Uh, you know, I, I'm thinking that the Chinese are into the bankers too, so they're not going to do anything that they don't want them to do. No. Uh, even, no. Though, even though they seem uh, enigmatic and esoteric uh, and inscrutable, as we often say. Yeah. But they're in the game also. And yeah, um, uh-huh. they may be used, I mean, w- will we have to fight them? Absolutely, but that will be orchestrated. The Chinese yeah. will not do anything that the, because I mean, there's stories about the Rockefellers being in China also. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, Bertrand Russell went over there. Yeah. Lord Bertrand Russell, he was sent there in the 1920s to set up the recruitment system and train students for the, for the coming communist system. Mm-hmm. So he's a British lord w- with a grant from the Queen to go over and do this, you see. And, uh, and they sent many of his own kind over there to do the same thing. So China... I mean, in the 1937, at the, the, the uh, Australian World Meeting of, of the Royal Institute of International Affairs and CFR, and I have the members' copies, they said that they would build up China after the war uh, towards the end of the millennium to be the, the world's sole manufacturer for the, for the, for the planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's quite something. when they, See, these are long-term business plans. Mm-hmm. And when they said that, China was a, a third-world nation. Yeah. And sure enough, they have done it at the, at the right time, they're right, they're right on track. And then they said that the United States will, will um, uh, go through two or three more minor wars, they said, mm-hmm. and be almost exhaust themselves. But like most empires, they said, it will be a final push, totally exhaust itself, and then China will take over the role as the policeman of the world. This is in 1937 at the World Meeting of the Royal Institute of International Affairs. All right. Now, I, I believe on that. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but if people want to go chase that down, can you give them a volume? And yeah, it's, it's just um, uh, it's, it's called the, the Minutes and Meeting uh, of the Meeting uh, uh, of the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Uh, I think it was Sydney, Australia. It was either Sydney or Melbourne, uh, 1937. All right. Will you spell uh, Rollins is spelled how? Pardon? Uh, you said Rollins, or um, what, there was something there that I, I didn't catch. That if, if people had to spell it out to do a search on LexisNexis, yeah, the, it's, it's the minutes in the meetings of the Royal Institute of International. Oh, the Royal, Royal Institute. Yeah. I got you. Okay, of international I'm sorry. affairs right. and the CFR. The book was printed even then. Okay. Uh, by the Rockefeller Foundation. I got you. It has that in the first page. And it's, it is quite honest. It tells you the truth. It says this is a non-profit, non-political organization. Yeah. See, they don't they don't play politics. They simply make an agenda. Yeah, they make they, the rules. Yeah, I know, but they play politics. We yeah. know that. All right, we're talking with Alan Watt. Uh, he is the author of uh, three titles that come under the heading of uh, the Cutting Through series. Uh, you can obtain them. Uh, he's in Canada, so you have to send him either uh, Federal Reserve notes or international uh, money orders, and you can do that to Alan Watt, care of... Site, S-I-T-E, 41, Box 4, Estaire, Ontario. That would be E-S-T-A-I-R-E. And their zip, the Canadian zip, is Peter 3, Edward 4, Norma 1. Did I get that right? 
Mm-hmm. All right, and uh, please, by all means, and I'm sorry that I've been a little uh, late in doing that, but like I said, i got to go into the big city to get um, the international uh, money orders. Uh, we, we only have a little time left, and, of course, we want you to come back for one more hour if it's possible. Yeah. But I'm going to ask you uh, just kind of like in a lightning round. Um, all right, let, let me throw this out, and I guess that's all we're going to have time for, and that is, to me, I think that um, um, a threshold moment will be the Olympics in China where you have an aggressing and militarily building uh, nation showing itself off in an Olympics as, China, uh, as, as Germany did in 36. Yeah. Might we expect, and do you agree or whatever, you know, give us our view, do you think things might get unhinged after 2008? Um, I, I know that there's an immense crisis to be brought on uh, by th- 2010, so whatever they can do to, to get us all off balance and panicking, so that they can bring in um, uh, the solutions, uh, they will do everything that they can to, to get us in that mode. So we've got a lot of crisis creation uh, and build up going up to, to that date and to 2010, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, coming plagues, war, ev- they'll use everything, I'm sure, you know to get us all unhinged. Uh, yeah, I mean, for every day that we have, um, I'm hoping that, um, you know, we'll enjoy what you got while you got it. That's all yeah. we can say. Alan, thanks for being with us. Um, uh, hopefully you'll come back for a third hour. We'll do that somewhere down the road. Uh, yep. Is that okay with you? Yep, that's, that's fine. All right, brother. Thank you very much, and we'll, ki- we'll get back with you uh, as soon as possible. And thanks for visiting the Grassy Knoll. It's a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>